In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So today, God willing, we're going to continue studying in the book of Romans. Um, last week, we had started chapter 8, um, and we got a little bit more than halfway through. So I'm going to uh, start from the beginning of chapter 8, just reading it, um, without going into any depth of all the material that we covered already. And uh, we'll continue from uh, where we left off. So um, again, as a reminder, um, chapter eight, this whole the whole book, um, St. Paul is speaking about, um, he's speaking to the Jews and to the Gentiles that are in Rome. And one of the, the main issues that the early church was dealing with at the time was from the Jews' resistance to the idea that salvation and Christianity were for the whole world and not just to the Jews alone. And for that reason, the Jews were clinging to the Old Testament law that they had been used to practicing in the Old Testament, um, which is exemplified by um, the act of circumcision, which was a sign of being among the people of God in the Old Testament. And so the Jews were clinging to this and expecting and, and wanting essentially that everyone who becomes a Christian would be circumcised and they felt that their justification and their salvation was coming through these ritual acts that they were doing and and downplaying the importance of the grace that came through the Lord Jesus Christ so st. Paul in this book and very much in this chapter speaks so much to the heart of the Christian faith and salvation through the blood of Christ and the sanctified life that we are called to live as a result of this transformation that happens in us as believers. So I'm just going to read the first part of chapter 8 um, briefly um, until we get to um, where we left off. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. <coughs> therefore, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was not subjected to futility, not, sorry, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I think this is where we stopped um, last time. So again, the focus of this chapter is speaking about the transformation that happens in the believer as a result of having accepted Christ and, and, and been transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit that begins in baptism. And he speaks about the adoption the adoption is when we as, okay. So again, the idea of groaning is the, the expectation, like kind of like the anticipation of the coming of the kingdom of God, right? Like all creation, including us as human beings, are living in the state of corruption and having to endure the corruption that is in the world that was never intended by God. God did not create the world in the, with the corrupted way that it is now. So we are having to suffer, right? Because he was speaking about the idea of suffering with Christ. We are, we are suffering in this world in order for us to um, be transformed, in order for us to endure to the end, in order for us to demonstrate our faith. Then God is using all these trials in our life to transform us, to change us, to help us to grow. But we are all in expectation as a church all together, as all of the believers waiting for the end to come so that the fullness of the glory of God is to be revealed. And even St. Paul was talking about the revealing of the sons of God, the revealing of the glory of, of the believers, of the children of God. Okay, So he's saying we were saved in this hope, the hope of the coming. But this hope, is it's, the reason we call it hope is because it's something that will come in the future. It's not something that has happened yet. But we hope for what we do not see. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Okay, so this is where we left off. Or no, actually, we, I think we read this too. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. 
For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That even our own prayers, when we stand before God, sometimes we say, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to pray. That even the Holy Spirit assists us in our prayer and prays on our behalf. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Right? God who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints. Like the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us. The Holy Spirit knows our heart, searches what's in our mind, prays on our behalf uh, in order for our prayers to be heard. So even when we find we are in a, in a place where we don't know what to pray or we feel like our prayers are lacking or we have no desire to pray, even God assists us even in these times to pray to him, even when from our human perspective and our human nature our prayers feel like they are lacking and then now this is a very famous verse Romans 8 28 we should all memorize it. it says and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose and the reason this is such as an important verse is because it brings clarity as to everything that happens to us everything that happens to us in our life we believe that God will turn all things to good okay so does this mean that all things are good so what does it mean God can take um, any bad situation and if you call upon him and like he gives you the hope and grace at the end of the day even if everything's going wrong. So so there could be real evil, right? Not everything is good. But to the believer, all things work together for good. Meaning God takes the evil, the things that that were intended as evil or the things that are corrupted, the things that are broken, the things don't function as they should, and God is still able to use those things for the benefit of the believers. I think a really good example of this is Job, okay? Because when Satan, you know, in the book of Job at the very beginning, what, how did it start? It started that God essentially was boasting of Job and his righteousness. And the devil uh, said to God, um, the only reason that Job is the way he is is because you have protected him. You have like put a wall around him. You have not allowed any calamities to happen to him. And because his life is so great, and because you have given him so many uh, comforts and benefits, this is why he worships you. But if you take those things away, he will curse you, right? And he will turn away from you. And so God, knowing Job and the faith of Job, he allowed the devil to test Job. And, and, and that test resulted in Job losing his family, losing his health, losing everything, right? All his possessions. Um, but at the very end, of this whole ordeal, the whole book is 42 chapters, right? At the whole end of this whole ordeal, when Job goes through all of these difficult challenges and, 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 and all these other people who are coming to supposedly comfort him were actually like more of a source of, of uh, depression and anxiety to him. But at the very end, the, the famous verse that Job says in Job 42 is, I have seen you, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Like through the 
trials that Job experienced, he actually grew closer to God. He actually experienced God in a much deeper way that he said, before I heard of you with my ear, but now I see you with my eyes. I, I understand you. I know how you work. And I have experienced you in a very personal way. But all of this happened through what? Through suffering, right? It didn't, it didn't happen because Job was blessed with possessions. Because actually he had possessions. And he had every good thing. You know, he had, he had luxury. He had, he had every good thing. And yet in that experience of goodness, um, the, 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 the knowledge that Job had of God was limited. It was limited. And maybe Job didn't even realize that his experience or understanding or knowledge of God was limited in the life that he had, his life of comfort that he had. And of course, Job did not sin in order for all these evil things to come on him. Job did not blaspheme. Job did not, actually he was, he was, he was a servant. He, 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 he always did good. But it was because God allowed something that was intended to be evil. You know, when, when Satan is there talking to God and telling him to, that, that I want to go and, and tempt Job, Satan wasn't doing it because he wanted to do good to Job. He wasn't doing it because he thought, you know, if I try Job, he's eventually going to come out of it with stronger faith. No, that, that was by no means what the devil was wanting to do. He wanted to destroy him, right? So definitely what the devil intended against Job was completely for evil. There was nothing good in, in, in his intentions. So the question is, is there actual evil and is there things that are bad? Of course, there's a lot of things that are bad. God does not want us to suffer. It's not that God sees his children suffering and this puts a smile on his face. You know, even when we speak about how God uses suffering and God allows suffering and, and suffering can be a source of purification for us and growth and all that, even with all of that, it doesn't mean that God enjoys to see us suffer. Just like no parent sees their children suffering and enjoys it, maybe they allow it because that suffering teaches them something that cannot be taught any other way but it doesn't mean that the parents are sitting there enjoying the tears of their children. No, they, they enjoy the fruit of the lesson, but they don't enjoy the process of suffering itself. Okay, So God does not enjoy human suffering, but God knowing the outcome of that suffering is far more valuable than maybe the, the temporary pain that we experience he allows. Right? Again, just as St. Paul says, he calls all the present sufferings of this world a light affliction that produce an eternal weight of glory. So if you measure light affliction on the one hand and eternal weight of glory on the other hand, you go through the light affliction and you come out with the eternal weight of glory. So on a, on a balance, the eternal weight of glory is far, far, far more valuable. So God is willing to allow. Okay, So he takes whatever corruption exists, you know, like, for instance, when we say that, let's say somebody uh, hurt me in some way. Did, did God make them to hurt me? Did God want them to hurt me? Did God go and tell that person to sin against me? God didn't do any of those things. But God, knowing the corruption in the world, including the corruption in people and the, the bad choices that people make, he allows those bad things to transform into good. So that in the end, our, our experience of it, yes, it's painful, of course, but it's a good experience in the end. Another example is King David. When King David was on the run from his son Absalom, who was trying to take his throne, there was this man whose name is Shimei, and Shimei was cursing King David 
Okay, and when King David heard these curses, he interpreted it as God is trying to humble him. He didn't look at it as this man is cursing me and so I have to kill him. That's actually what the, the men who were with King David wanted to do. They wanted to kill him. And King David told them, no, don't kill him. Maybe God wants me to hear these curses against me. Right? So again, how do we understand it? The man himself was doing something wrong. He was cursing King David. There was in no way are we praising the man for what he did. But, but what did God do? He turned it into something good for David. He used it as an opportunity to um, humble him. Uh, St. Paul also, who when we read about how he had a thorn in his side, which is a disease that he had, and he asked God to remove it from him, and God did not remove it. Okay, again, for the purpose of teaching something to St. Paul. So in all these examples, right, we have people who are righteous people, who are good people, who did not commit sin. They are not being punished because of the sin they committed or anything like that. And they are suffering the natural consequences of corruption in the world, including the sinfulness of other people, including natural disasters, including uh, whatever it might be, the demonic attacks. All those things are happening in the world completely out of our control. I can't control the actions of others. I can't control natural disasters. I can't control dem demonic attacks. I can't control any of these things. And I am in the world that is surrounded by these things. I am immersed in these things. Okay? So for a person who is not protected by God, this is a very, very dangerous, scary life. Because the world is full of disaster. Okay? The world is full of disaster. And if a person who doesn't have this promise okay that is here and all manner of things happen to them and they ask the question what is the purpose of this what, what, is there purpose is there any meaning behind the things that are happening and they don't find an answer what is the meaning maybe there is no meaning okay but this promise here that God gives and we know that all things work together for good okay so who then is this what is the qualification of this who is it then that all things work for good toward? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And again, we were speaking before about the calling, right? The calling and the election is those who are the believers who have chosen to be baptized, to become children of God. Those are the called. Those are the called. The called are all the people who have who have uh, accepted to walk this path to suffer with Christ to be redeemed by Christ who believe in him who become heirs with him who are the ones again as St. Paul said uh, earlier in the chapter who call God their father and cry out Abba father so to those people those who love God those who are called according to his purpose this is the promise then that God makes God at no point ever and anywhere in Scripture ever promises that the, his children will be exempted from suffering or that if you look at the life of a Christian person and you compare that to a life of a non-Christian, that you will find that the life of the Christian has less suffering than the other. There's no promise. There's no such promise. The kind of suffering you can say that would be less in the life of a Christian is the mental suffering and the mental anguish that comes from the feeling of purposelessness, right? The fact that everything around me is purposeless. That brings a kind of suffering 
That brings a kind of anxiety and mental anguish to believe that nothing in my life has any real meaning, has nothing, no real purpose, that the world is this aimless, random place where anything can happen at any time and nothing makes any sense. That brings a kind of anguish. But to the believer, we don't have to suffer such anguish. We don't have to believe that. We can go through life, experience whatever manner of tribulations that God allows. But he turns those things into opportunities for good. So that not only are they neutral to us, but they are actually good for us. It goes a step beyond just extinguishing them. It's not like, you know, it's, it's not like someone is like trying to fire bullets at you, but you have a bulletproof vest and you're not hurt. It's beyond this. It's not just that someone is trying to harm you and God protects you from it. No, it's a transformation of what was supposed to hurt you into something that actually aids you. And this is what the resurrection is about. The whole concept of resurrection is the transformation of death into life. Not simply canceling death and just being, you know, like, like staying the way that you are. No, it's actually a transformation from something that was meant to destroy you to something that is meant to actually give you a life that is greater than the life you had. And that's when we say we look to the resurrection of the dead. This is why we do not count our lives dear to us. This is why the whole message of the scripture is do not be attached to the world and do not love the world. Because the things that we will inherit are greater than the things that are in the world. So it's not that I become invincible and that I get to live forever on earth. Because you know, if you ask people on the earth, what is it that you wish the most? Maybe a lot of people will say, I wish not to die. I wish to stay alive. And people want to extend their life, you know, as, as long as possible. Right, which, which we can understand that. Maybe we also have that desire as human beings that are made of flesh. We have a desire to avoid death because death is contrary to our nature. Death is contrary to the nature that God gave us. He gave us to be immortal. And we suffer death because of the corruption that has happened. But instead of God just giving us this saying, I'm going to extend your life. No, he said, I'm going to take, I'm going to allow you to die. But that death is a death that doesn't have any power against you. And it will result in a life that is better than, greater than the life that you already had. So death then becomes something that people can look forward to. It can become something that I am anticipating with hope. That, that what will happen to me is even better than the life I have now. So this verse, Romans 8.28, you just memorize that reference. We, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Okay. This is where we get our understanding of what predestination means. Right? Other Christian traditions, like in the Protestant tradition, specifically in the Calvinist tradition, John Calvin, okay, he believed the idea of predestination to mean that God pre-selects certain individuals 
for salvation and eternal life, and he pre-selects certain individuals for damnation, for condemnation, for to not inherit eternal life. And this was his view. And his view is that God essentially picks certain people. And if you're one of the chosen elect, then you're in. And actually some will say that there's nothing that you can do in order to cancel that selection. Because God has made a selection, nothing you do can cancel it. Similarly, those who have not been selected, nothing you can do can cause you to be selected. No matter what kind of life you live, no matter how much repentance you have, no, much, no matter how holy you are, it doesn't matter. In the end, you were not selected, and so you missed out. Okay? Of course, this view is, makes God out to be cruel. Because it means that he created human beings intending for them to have eternal condemnation. So, of course, we don't accept this understanding of predestination. And actually, here, St. Paul, he makes it clear. He says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the idea of the foreknowledge, okay, the foreknowledge means what? God already knows what individuals will choose. He already knows what individuals will choose. But he plays no part in manipulating that decision or taking away their free will of that decision. So even though God might know for all of us how our lives will go, what we will choose to do, every decision we will make, all the events that will happen, God is not engineering it so that some of us will choose him and some of us will not choose him. The choice is ours. It's a free will choice. And yet God knows ahead of time what choice we will make. Okay? And, I, and sometimes people have difficulty understanding the difference. How is it that God can know but not affect us? So I always use this example. I might have used this example here before, but I'll say it again. Imagine that you watch a movie, okay, for the first time, and you see everything happen, all the characters in the movie, everything that happens with those characters. You're watching a movie, okay? So you, 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 you learn the outcome of the movie and all the characters in the movie. Then you start the movie from the beginning and you watch it a second time. Now you know what is going to happen to all those characters. So from the beginning of the movie, if someone asks you what's going to happen to this person, you can answer that question. You know exactly what's going to happen to that person. But watching the movie the second time, you have made no decisions to affect the outcome of that movie. Each character in the movie still has free will, still chooses whatever they choose to do. And maybe if you're like me, sometimes when you watch a movie a second time, you wish that the characters would make different choices, but they never make different choices. They always make the same choice. Okay? So I might have foreknowledge as to what each character will do, but I have not in any way prevented them from making their choices. Okay? So God is the same. It, time in the mind of God is like, it's like nothing. Like time... God is, exists outside of time. So the concept of the future is unknown, that's a, that's a temporal human limitation. That's not a limitation for God. God sees the future and the past and the present all equally, the same. There's no difference in his mind about that. Okay? So he knows what we will choose. Okay? So for whom he foreknew, he predestined, meaning those people who have chosen God, he is the one who is predestining them to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn, again, we said this before, 
that everything we experience, Christ experiences first before us. So he's the one who died on the cross. We are baptized, which is death with the Lord. Christ experienced resurrection. Okay, We also are resurrected in baptism. Everything spiritually that we are experiencing, Christ experienced the first one. Okay, So he is the firstborn among many brethren. So we are all the brethren, all the ones that God foreknew, which are all the ones that God predestined. We are the, like the brothers and sisters of Christ, that Christ is the first among us, the one who entered into paradise first, the one who was risen from the dead first, okay? But we all will be with him. Moreover, whom he predestined, there he also, uh, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. So this calling, okay, which, which is the calling to faith, our response to this calling to faith, our first, the first step of this call is baptism. And in baptism, we have justification. Justification means to be declared just, to be made just, which means that all of the sins that we committed previously, as well as the original sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, is wiped away in this moment. So whom he called, okay, he justified. In the waters of baptism, we are justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And the glorification happens. Number one, through the process of sanctification, where we're becoming more and more like Christ, that the, 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 our carnal nature dies in the waters of baptism. And we come out of it with a trans, as a transformed creation, as a new creation, wanting to walk with Christ, wanting to live according to his commandments, feeling guilt and shame when we f fail to do so, repenting when we fail to do so, and, and, and walking more and more with him throughout our life, and then ultimately culminating in a glorification. Again, back to what he said before about the revealing of the sons of God. The revelation to the whole world that these people who call themselves believers and Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, are glorified that at the day of the second coming, when the resurrection happens, all of those who are the sons of God will come up into the, into the heavens with Christ and it will be understood by everyone, that all the whole world will understand in that moment what was the truth. And then we are glorified, we enter into paradise, we enter the kingdom of heaven with Christ. So this is the process, okay? We are predestined because God knew what is it that we would choose. He called us and we responded in faith and were baptized. We became justified in baptism, meaning that all of our sins were forgiven. And then we walk in sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, and then ultimately culminating in glorification um, at, th at the end, at the end of the world and at the end of our lives. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, a lot of times we don't think this way, right? Like, if you were to look around at the people who are against us, maybe we can come up with a lot of people or a lot of situations that we think these things are against us, you know? Look at all the things that are against us, all the things we read about on the news, that maybe after we read it, we get depressed and we say, look at all the things against us. All the persecutions that we experience in the world and Christians in general experience in the world, look at all the things that are against us. Or all the individuals 
that I feel like persecute me or oppress me or bother me in some way. Look at all these people who are against us, right? And the more we focus on uh, the things that are against us and we become consumed with the things that are against us, we can lose our peace because we feel like the, the, the challenges that we have, the enemies that we have, the things that are persecuting us, bothering us are so great in multitude and in power that we feel like I cannot stand in front of them. There is no way for me to resist. There is no way for me to fight. There is, I am a victim. We feel like we are victims of a world that is far bigger than us, that is far more powerful than us. And again, day by day and week by week, it seems to just get worse and worse and worse to the point where like, we stop even like, comprehending how bad things have become. But again, we read this again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Meaning that ultimately, God brings victory. And no matter what happens to the body, no matter what happens to the world, the greater victory has already been won. Okay? So for us to truly understand this, we have to understand where God's focus is. You know, we, we speak about how does God care about the job I have? Yes, God wants me to have a job according to his will. Does God care about my spouse? Yes. Does God care about my family? Yes. Does God care about my finances? Yes. God cares about all these things. But what God cares about the most, above anything else, and what he is, and he is willing to sacrifice everything else for, is salvation. Because that's the thing that can never change once it's set. You know, everything else, like, okay, you lose this job, you get this other job. You know, you, you lose this, you get this. The world is full of, of gain and loss. Like, the world is, the world ultimately, the end, has a lot of pain in it, has a lot of loss in it, has a lot of confusion in it, has a lot of things in it. Okay? The one thing that we can never miss or lose out on or compromise is eternity. And so, for God, if he knows that if some problem over here is going to allow me to live eternally with him, he has no problem doing that. He has no problem allowing that. This goes back to the idea that all things work for good. Is it possible for God to shield us from every possible problem in the world? Yes, but that's most likely and we're most definitely not what's best for us, not in our best interest. So when we focus so much on the world and s focus so much on the problems I have here, we miss, the, we miss God's intention. Why is it that people, when they go through a very painful situation in the world, sometimes will lose their faith? Because their thinking, their mindset, is that God wants the best possible life for me now. And if God wants the best possible life for me now, and that best possible life is not happening, at least in my own estimation, then either God doesn't love me, or he doesn't care, or he's not powerful, or he doesn't exist. But that's a human thinking. That's the way humans think. Because all we think about is this life. We don't, we're not paying attention to anything else. All that our life consists of is our bodies, our families, our friends, the money we have in the bank, our possessions. That's the content of this life for us. Our future plans. That's my world. But that is microscopic when you compare it to God's plan. Because God's focus is so different 
than our focus. So if he has to allow us to not get everything that we want in this specific life in order to get that eternal weight of glory, he will not hesitate. And that might look to some of us as being uncaring and unloving and silent. Why are you allowing this and this and this? Well, the answer is, is that it's not about those things. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not about those things. Those thi that is not the bigger picture. Okay? I always use the example of the children, right? That's like I have a, a little child whose toy broke. And the, to the child, it's like the biggest end of the world. But to the parents, it's like, it's not that big a deal. You'll get another toy. Like, it'll be okay. Life will continue. Right? But to the child, it's the end of the world. Because the whole life of the child is tied up in these little plastic things. That's the whole life. So as long as their focus is on the plastic, then they don't realize that the world is a much bigger place and there's much greater joys to be had than the plastic toy. Right? So God's, God is like that with us. All the, thi the greatest things that we can envision and imagine in this life are like little plastic toys. They have really so little value in eternity so if 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 god allows these little plastic toys to be broken in order for us to change our attention to something more important he will not hesitate to do it and and and, and when he does that it doesn't mean that he is not loving he's actually securing us eternally through something that is very insignificant in the bigger picture so if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has, has protect, if God has granted us this, if God has granted us this ultimate eternal life, what can be against us? All of our enemies, even the devil himself, the only thing he can do is harass us concerning this life. All of our enemies can harass us about the physical things, but they cannot harass us, they cannot take away from us, the eternal things ever. It says what in scripture that, that we are like in the palm of, of the Father's hand and no one can snatch us from his hand. Not even the devil himself. The only one who can snatch us, the only one that can cause us to lose this is ourselves. When we choose something else. I'm not choosing to be with God. I'm choosing to be in the world. I choose the world over God. When God presents me this eternal reality and these eternal joys and all these things, like, no, I'm not interested in that. I would rather come here and play with the plastic things. This is my life. And for a while and for a time, maybe people who make those choices enjoy it. And they like it. And they feel successful in it. And they feel like they're making progress with it. But ultimately, there will come the day where they will lose it all. And then what will be left? They will have nothing. They will have nothing. So if God is for us, nothing can be against us. No enemy can overcome us, ultimately. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Meaning, if God went to the extent of debasing himself, to become a human being and to suffer at the hands of his creation and to suffer all the limitations of being a human being, if God even was willing to do this, shall he not give us everything? Like, are we saying that we believe 
that he actually sent his son and, and debased himself and died for us and suffered and all those things and was killed. We believe that. But when it comes to me getting married, oh, I, I, I don't know. He, 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 I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't know. Or when it comes to us finding a job, no, I don't know. I'm giving up. I haven't found a job. Well, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Like if he's willing to give you the thing that causes him the maximum amount of pain, why would he not be willing to give us the thing that's trivial and insignificant to him? The thing that takes no effort from him, right? Again, we interpret the actions and the events that happen to us in the wrong lens. We, we see them wrongly. When we see that there's something that we want that we don't get, the first impulse we get is impatience, why God is not doing this, I want God to do this, why is he not doing it? And, and it just, yeah, impatience. We're impatient and we, we, don't, we, we don't know. And so we're just impatient, maybe angry, maybe we become angry at God, maybe we fall into sin, maybe we, like all kinds of bad ways that we deal with things when we don't get what we want. But here, St. Paul is making it very clear, he's already given you far greater than what you are asking. So why would he not give you those things? Maybe the reason is not what you think. Maybe there is a reason that you don't understand and you don't know. And again, the light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. Maybe he wants us to learn patience. Maybe, he, maybe there's something we want that's actually horrible that we don't understand and see. So God is preventing that. Whatever the reason might be for the specific situation that we have, we should not jump and have this impulse and jump to the conclusion that it's, well, God doesn't care, God does, doesn't look out for me, this is not something like, or maybe I've done something wrong and God is punishing me, or all the reasons we give. God wants to give us the maximum, not the minimum, okay? So when it, when it appears that God is being stingy and he is withholding something that we desire, this is not because he is lacking something. This is not because his timing is off. This is not because he forgot. This is not because he doesn't care. This is because this is good for us. Back to Romans 8.28. It is good that we do not have what it is that we ask. Not everything that we want and everything that we ask is good. I would say the majority of things that we want are not good. I, I, would, I, would, I would dare to say that. That the majority of things that we actually, like if I had the ability to get everything I wanted, like if I had no restrictions, if I had ultimate resources, I would think that the majority of things that we would actually obtain for ourselves would be bad. So even the restrictions that we have and God not granting us unlimited resources, this in itself is a blessing. That's why like when people think, you know what, I want to be ultra wealthy. No, being ultra wealthy is going to be a disaster a lot of to a lot of people if god wants to grant it to us wonderful then this is god's will but the desire to simply be wealthy the scripture says this is a snare the, de the desire to be rich is a snare so we thank god because he doesn't give us everything that we want and if he were to give us everything that we want we would destroy ourselves so even this is good even this is good. So whenever I ask something from God that in my clear view seems to be the right thing and it doesn't happen, thank God it didn't happen. Just straight up.
Thank God it didn't happen. You don't have to struggle with that, and you don't have to understand that. Like, you don't have to understand why. It doesn't matter why. The point is, is he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So whatever he gives is good. Whatever he doesn't give is good. And it's all good. So, Question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so right before this, you were like plastic, and but God's focused on everlasting stuff. And like, how do you know that what you're asking for is like everlasting goodness that's coming or plastic? Because I feel like you said a lot of things that it could like it could be anything, right? Like I could ask for a new job, right? That's not necessarily bad, right? But how do I know that him not giving that to me is like him saying, hey, this is the broken plastic toy and like I have better things for you. And what does it mean when you say like God's offering us everlasting goodness? Like what is that? Is that at the end or like what does that look like now? So ultimately that gift is fully realized at the end of our life. But everything that happens to us from now until then is either a step closer to that life or a step away from that life, right? There is no lateral moves. So everything we do is either a step closer to God or a step further from God. So anything he allows is going to be something that takes us a step closer. If giving us a billion dollars will give us a step closer, he will give a billion dollars. If that will take us a step backward, he will not give it. I can't go to the, like, I, most of the time and much of the time, we don't know. Like, what would have happened, like, if there's a job that I really want and I didn't get it? What would have happened to me if I had gotten that job? I don't know what it would happen, you know? So God does not usually explain himself in such terms because... Because easily he could. But because he wants us to have faith in him. He wants us to trust him. He doesn't want us to just rely and trust on the things he gives. Like, it's not about our own understanding, right? Because if we understood everything that, first of all, we can't understand, right? Even in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, no one can understand the things that God does from beginning to end. No one can understand it. So one, it's beyond our understanding. But two, even if we could understand, that makes us like trying to be in the place of God, in a sense, because we are a sheep, right? He likens us to sheep. We are so less than him. He likens us to sheep. And sheep don't know where they're going. Like all they know is where the shepherd is. The shepherd goes this way, they go that way. The shepherd goes this, they go that way. Why does the shepherd lead them this way and this way and not that way and this way? Sheep can't comprehend that right? Maybe a human being can comprehend, but in this analogy, we are the sheep. So sometimes the only way that we know that something is bad for us is because God didn't allow it. That's the only reason. Not because we can necessarily discern or, or reason our way through it, because it's not, again, about a human choice. Because we oftentimes want things, again, that's not God's will. So if we knew that they were bad for us, we probably wouldn't be asking for them to begin with but the reason we ask is because we don't know and god knows and we and 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 we so we just have to accept it so i think the answer to your question is a lot of times there is no way to know it's just based on what god allows 
again, goes back to Romans 8.28. Like, if I believe that everything that God allows for me becomes good, then I don't have to worry about it. You know, like, I don't have to be anxious about it. Like, you know, sometimes we, we miss an opportunity or something that we think is a good opportunity, and we feel like this regret, and, oh, you know, if only I would have said this or only if I would have done that. We don't have to feel that way. We don't have to feel that way. Is it possible for us to do actions to actually prevent the will of God? Yes. Like if God is leading me in a direction and I actively, purposely defy him, is it possible for you to, to mess up something that God wanted for me? Yes, it's possible. But if we are generally trying our best to live godly and to live with him and living a life of repentance and God knows our weakness, then we don't have to live with this feeling of regret that things that we wanted to happen didn't happen. Because again, we'll say, this wasn't God's will for me. You know, I tried my best. I studied for the test. But when I took the test, I got a D. It's okay. I mean, it's hard to say that. But that's the, tr that's the reality. Maybe God didn't want me to be successful in that. He wanted me to be do something different. So, like... It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept of just surrendering our will to, to realize that all the things that happen around us are not just random events, but they're things that maybe are bad, quote-unquote, but God is turning them for good, so that in the end, the outcome is good. Okay? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So the elect are the predestined, are the believers. Who shall bring a charge against the elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? So if God is willing for us to be saved, if God wants us to inherit eternal life, or when we open the door to Christ, no one can, no one can come and to mess up that relationship. Again, except me. I can kick Christ out of the house, but no one can come and kick him out. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Like all the possible, the most extreme events, or problems, or dangerous things that one can imagine in the world, whatever it might be, whatever destructive force we can think of, whether it's inanimate or, or a human being or whatever it might be, can any of that separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So all of the sufferings, all of the famines, all of the persecutions, all every, everything that he's speaking about, we are conquerors of those things. But we have to be, again, careful to understand what does it mean to conquer. Christ demonstrated his power on the cross. This was the greatest act of victory and the greatest act of conquering because he conquered death. But from a human perspective, looking at him on the cross, people concluded that he was a weakling, 
They said, how could you be the Messiah? How could you who claim to be the Son of God, how could you be the Son of God? If you are truly God, then come down from this cross, which is the physical symbol of weakness, right? How could you, how, if you, if you cannot come down from the cross, then how, how have you conquered anything? And this is also a representation of the type of conquering that we as Christians have. You know, we have so many like superhero movies in our culture, right? And people like superhero movies. Because superhero movies make you feel like the human being is able to accomplish something that is greater than and above what an actual normal human being can do. So we, like, um, we think of power in those terms. We think of power in terms of someone who's able to fly or to blow up a building or to, to, to demonstrate, like, physical strength beyond what any other person can do. And of course, if someone had such a power, right, and maybe the reason that someone would want to have such a power is because I don't want anyone to harm me or I want to harm the people who have harmed me or I just, I wanna, I wanna be strong, right? So in the world, we, we tend to think of strength in this way, right? And, you know, I mentioned it before, like in the, in the hymn, the only begotten and the sixth hour of Good Friday, when him is speaking about how Christ demonstrated his, his, his strength in what looked like weakness. It says he demonstrated what was greater than power. It was greater than the human understanding of power. It was the destruction of the force of death, right? Like none of the superheroes in the movies can actually conquer death, right? What they demonstrate is a power in this world. Okay, but the kind of power and the kind of conquering that Christ demonstrated is not the power in this world. That he did miracles, yes, but that wasn't that wasn't the main focus of his incarnation, right? The greatest acts of power that Christ did didn't have to do with the physical world. It was a spiritual conquering. It was the conquering of death. It was. Um, the entering into Hades and bringing out of Hades all the prisoners who were imprisoned there since the Old Testament and bringing them up into paradise. That was the act of a very powerful being, something that no one else could do. Christ did not need to demonstrate power on earth in that way. You know, again, it's kind of like, go back to the example of children. If you were to go into a kindergarten class you know, you wouldn't try to show off your power to them. Like you wouldn't try to show, look how much weight I can lift. Because you're already so much more powerful than them just by your being. Because they're puny compared to you. Like you could pick them up with one hand if you wanted to. You don't feel a need to demonstrate your physical power to people who are far, far, far weaker than you are. Just like Christ, when he comes to the world, like, he has no reason to demonstrate any power. He is already so far more powerful. So every time people were asking him for a sign and all these things, he's like, no, I don't want to, no, that's not why I'm here. That's not the point. You're missing it. All of the Jewish people who, who were looking to the Messiah to be like this powerful king, again, they were thinking of it in the physical terms. But what Christ was bringing was a far greater type of conquering. It didn't matter if Israel conquered the world and they became the most powerful army and all these great and amazing you know, worldly political things that the Jews wanted to just overthrow the Romans and, you know, all these things. It didn't matter because in the end, death is still going to destroy all of you. 
no matter how powerful a kingdom you have, every single one of the people in that kingdom are going to die. So the greater power is death. That is the greatest power. So Christ, when he came to destroy the greatest power, and maybe it's a power that we all kind of have accepted, you know, human beings like accept the concept of death, that it exists. Christ came and conquered this, the thing that no human was strong enough to conquer. So in this way, when we say we are more than conquerors, we are not more than conquerors in the military sense or in the physical sense. This is why you see so many martyrs among the Christians. That, that's not how could we say we are more than conquerors when you see all these people who are suffering, right, for their faith. The conquering is not a physical conquering. Just like the, the conquering of Christ, the power he demonstrated was not the physical power, but it was the spiritual power. And this is also the type of conquering that we have when we say we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors in being able to overcome sin, to actually be able to control ourselves, to be able to have self-discipline. We are more than conquerors in the fact that we're able to commune with the divine God. We are more than conquerors because we are the children of God. We are more than conquerors because we have access to the sacraments and because that the doors of the kingdom of heaven are open to us. We are more than conquerors in all these things because no human act could have performed or done any of these things. And yet Christ has granted them to us freely. They say, I am, I am allowing you to, to enjoy these benefits that you did nothing to labor for. And so in this way, we are more than conquerors. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us <coughs> from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, why are we more than conquerors? Because there is no greater power. There is no greater power that can destroy the spiritual benefits that Christ bestowed upon us. Death cannot even conquer it, right? Prior to this, death conquered everything. Death took everything from everyone indiscriminately. And it didn't matter what kind of life you lived. It didn't matter if you prayed or didn't pray. It didn't matter if you repented or didn't repent. It didn't, it didn't remember anything. Anyone who died prior to Christ went to Hades. So nothing, nothing we ever did would have mattered. So Christ, he gave us this power to overcome death. No spiritual beings, angels or principalities or powers, nothing that has happened or will happen in the future is going to change this. No height or depth, nothing in the physical world, no matter how powerful and no matter how big, no created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is for these reasons that we should feel joyful, at peace, not anxious, contented, uh, not afraid of the future, because our focus is on this. But if our focus is on our money, if our focus is on our possessions, if our focus is on the physical things in this life, God makes no promises about those things. There is there the whatever whatever blessings we have today, there is no promise about tomorrow. And that's just the fact. 
Again, look at Job. Literally, in one day, he lost it all. But even that act of him losing it all was not purposeless, was not aimless, was not capricious, was not just an arbitrary act um, with no reason. But again, like we said, everything is either a step toward God or a step away from God. And I'm not saying that God is going to do for us as Job. Maybe we would not be able to withstand what happened to Job. And I'm not trying to paint a bleak picture for what life will look like in the world. But all I'm saying is that this, in this world, you will have tribulation. This is what Christ, right? Whatever God allows for us individually in this life is for our good. And we struggle to accept and be content with all these things as we redirect our energy, our focus from this life to the next life. And that is where we find comfort. That is where we, we will find comfort. And the fact that ultimately in the life to come where we are going, that whatever loss we experience here is going to be of no value to us. There is no loss in the things that matter. There is only loss in the things that we are going to lose either way. You know, the things that whether I lose it today or tomorrow or in a year, I will eventually lose it without question. Everything that I have and have ever had and will ever have. I will lose it all completely against my will. So my, if you want to put it in these terms, my focus in this world is to learn how to give it away freely so that it is not taken from me by force. So that when that moment comes, I am not saddened. No, because I feel like what I am inheriting and where I am going is a far greater place that has far greater things and I'm so uh, like, like sure, I have assurance of that to where I am comforted even as I am losing and losing and losing all the stuff that I've ever had and yet I am still more joyful than ever because what I am gaining is far greater than what I have lost. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any questions? Yes. So Abuna, you said that um, God is chasing us and we can only push him away or um, or not follow him. So what are the way what are some of the ways that we don't follow him or don't uh, or reject him or reject his ways? Is it just not taking communion and confession or or, you know, what are some of those ways? So there's a lot of things, right? So, for instance, not reading his word is a way that we reject because we don't want to hear what he has to say. Not putting the things that he says into practice, right? And that really encompasses everything. So that would include things like not participating in the sacraments. It would include not repenting. It would include not forgiving my neighbor. It would, it would include not um, trying to orient my life in a godly way. Like it, 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 would, it would include not trying to make decisions that would please God it would include not praying and asking for God's guidance. Um, it would include not serving him when he has called me to serve. Like, 
essential because again like we said everything that god allows in this life is to allow us to continue to walk toward him so all his commandments are for our benefit so if we look at all of his commandments right we are called to do them again because they are life-giving so so the thing that the, the thing that you know and he he tempts us in ways to make us to stop but as long as we are continuing in this process we will forever be sinners till the end of our life it's not like we are ever going to have completely conquered our all sins in our life so we look to god's mercy who's granting us the kingdom of heaven even though we will never be perfect and we will never fully attain what he wants us to attain Thank you, Ibn. Um I have a question for Otsuk about how do we discern something, whether something is from God or it's from the devil? Because uh, we're obviously in this constant war, uh, but I feel like sometimes we immediately just kind of, I, I think it's a culture thing, right? Like we always say like God didn't allow or, or God this, but I feel like there, it's a little deeper than that. Um, so can your reverence kind of commentate on how do we discern when something is from God or it's the devil trying to, you know, steer us away from God? So in order for us to, to, to know if something is the will of God or not, there's usually many factors that all kind of work together to help us to discern whether something is the will of God. Like, let's say of making a decision. One way is if I read the word of God and understand what's right and wrong, okay, then the decision that I'm trying to make cannot break the things that God has said or the things that I know God wants. So for instance, I know that God wants me to be in the church and to take communion and to participate in the church life. We know that. So any decision that prevents me from doing that cannot be the will of God. You know, like if somebody comes and says, actually, I remember I was in the car with Sayyidna and somebody called him and the person was wanting to move from somewhere into the diocese and the place that they wanted to move the whole state didn't even have a single Coptic church in it and so the person is asking Sayyidna about his opinion about the job and he's talking about the job and how it's like a good job and so on and so on so Sayyidna's response to him was this is your decision but if you're going to a place that has no churches, then how can we say this is the will of God? Because there are some very basic things that we sometimes want to ignore because we're very attracted to a specific outcome. Like maybe this is a great job. Maybe it's paying me double than the job I currently have. Or maybe I've been looking for a job for five years and I haven't found a job and this is the first job I find. Or many, many other reasons. And I'm not trying to judge this person for desiring this position. But again, if my focus is all on this life, my decisions will be one way. If my focus is on the next life, my decisions might be a completely different way. I'm not saying not to have a good job. And I'm not saying that, you know, there are some jobs that yes, there we have to work hard and we're busy and we're not super available all the time and maybe the amount of time that we can participate in the church is less than before. I'm not saying that's wrong. But there are some things where it's like black and white, right? Like if I do this, then whatever spiritual life that I had, no more, okay? 
So one way to know that something is not from God is if it goes against the commandments of God or if it's like in an industry that God despises. You know, like if I work in a position or an industry that is a sinful one. Again, maybe they pay me a lot and they do all that. Like from a worldly perspective, it's great. But no, I, I can't say, I don't even consider the question. It's immediately no, because it is not according to the commandments of God. Another way that I know the will of God is through seeking counsel. So if I have wise counsel that I seek, whether it be from my father confession, from my parents, from wise friends that I have, or and I go talk to them about the situation and say, look, I have this decision I'm trying to make. Here are my options. What do you think? Sometimes God communicates to us through the consensus of many people. Not always, because sometimes the consensus is very bad. But when we seek godly people, we're hoping for a good consensus. Is everyone coming to me and they're noting the same things like, oh, this place is going to be good because of these reasons, or this place is going to be bad because of these reasons. Again, maybe this is the voice of God speaking to me. If everyone is saying the same thing, sometimes the reason we don't agree with them is because of a hidden bias that I myself don't recognize in myself, that I really want a certain outcome, and so I'm trying to find reasons to justify that outcome. And the best way for me to justify it is to think, oh yeah, God wants this. It is from God. Sometimes we think that because of something is a coincidence or there is some kind of strange circumstances behind it, that that means it must be the will of God, even if it is against his commandments. You know, again, God is not going to contradict himself. right? Um, personal peace that I have about something, you know? One reason I tell people who maybe they're trying to get married and they go through several failed relationships. Um, one of the benefits of having failed relationships is that when you find the right one, you have a piece about it based on experience that you, didn't, you wouldn't have had otherwise. You wouldn't have noticed otherwise. You wouldn't have realized how this specific person meets all of my needs until I met all these other people that didn't meet my needs. So again, that's another example of how God maybe leads us through difficult challenges in order to prepare us for something that he wants us to see. So maybe I have this extraordinary piece about something because this specific decision fits in so many different ways and I haven't found anything that answered all of these different things all together at once. So there's a lot of ways but the bottom line is, let's say, as godly as I want to be and as much as I'm seeking the will of God, let's say I end up making a wrong choice. Okay, Even then, God is able to redirect me back to the right choice. So I shouldn't live in anxiety and fear about decisions. You know, sometimes some people are very scared about making decisions because they feel like, you know, the decision is like it's only them alone making it. If, if you go through the right process and you seek counsel and you pray and you ask for, for comfort from God and you have all those things and you make a decision and then it ends up being a horrible one, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was the wrong one. Like if I choose to go for a specific job because I had in my mind a certain outcome and I thought it was going to be great and I thought the people are great and I thought the money is great and I thought the position is great and everything's great. But when I get there, I realize it's completely nothing like what I was told. Well, maybe God wanted me to have that experience. Again, God will use everything for good. Maybe it's a disappointment. Maybe it's not what I was hoping for. And there's nothing wrong with trying to find another one. But even that, as believers, 
if I'm doing everything in my power and I'm seeking guidance from God, I can't say it was the wrong decision. God let me there. Everything works out for good. So there is some, there's some purpose for me to be there. There's some lesson I will learn there. Yeah, I'll try to get out as fast as I can. <laughs> but there's something there that I need to see. Okay? Anything else? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O Lord, for your word that you give us to study and to understand, and all of the precious lessons and messages that you give us, O Lord, through your word. We thank you, O God, because you reveal to us how much we are valuable to you, even though, O Lord, we have done nothing to add to you, and we have done nothing, O Lord, to give you, that you would see us in this way with this heart of love that you have toward us. We thank you, O God, because you have opened the doors of the kingdom for us and that you have allowed us to enter and that you said that nothing, O Lord, can stop us from entering except our own will. We ask, O Lord, that you grant us uh, inward desire to walk with you. We ask, O God, that you protect us from sin and temptation that lead us away from you. We ask, O God, that you grant us self-control so that we do not live a life of corruption away from you. We thank you, O God, because you are merciful and kind and you accept our repentance. Give us, O Lord, a heart of repentance. Give us, O Lord, to mourn over our sins. Give us, O Lord, to accept, O Lord, your forgiveness and to lead a life of joy, knowing, O God, that whatever you allow for us is for our good. Protect us, O Lord, even in the midst of all of the darkness that is in this world and lead us and help us to navigate through it successfully and help us, O Lord, to serve one another and encourage one another and help us always, O Lord, to remember you in all of our days. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.